Chapter Twenty Five of France and England in North America, Part Three, La Salle, Discovery of the Great West. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. France and England in North America, Part Three. La Salle, Discovery of the Great West, by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter 25 1685 La Salle in Texas Impatience to rid himself of his colleague and to command alone no doubt had its influence on the judgment of La Salle. He presently declared that he would land the soldiers and send them along shore till they came to the principal outlet of the river. On this the engineer Minet took up the word expressed his doubts as to whether the mississippi discharged itself into the lagoons at all represented that even if it did the soldiers would be exposed to great risks and gave as his opinion that all should re-embark and continue the search in company the advice was good but la salle resented it as coming from one in whom he recognized no right to give it he treated me, complains the engineer, as if I were the meanest of mankind. He persisted in his purpose, and sent Joutel and Moringay with a party of soldiers to explore the coast. They made their way northeastward, along the shore of Matagorda Island, till they were stopped on the third day by what Joutel calls a river, but which was in fact the entrance of Matagorda Bay. Here they encamped, and tried to make a raft of driftwood. The difficulty was, says Joutel, our great number of men, and the few of them who were fit for anything except eating. As I said before, they had all been caught by force or surprise, so that our company was like Noah's Ark, which contained animals of all sorts. Before their raft was finished, they descried to their great joy the ships which had followed them along the coast. La Salle landed, and announced that here was the western mouth of the Mississippi, and the place to which the king had sent him. He said further that he would land all his men, and bring the amiable and the belle to the safe harborage within. Beaujou remonstrated, alleging the shallowness of the water and the force of the currents, but his remonstrance was vain. The Bay of St. Louis, now Matagorda Bay, forms a broad and sheltered harbor, accessible from the sea by a narrow passage, obstructed by sandbars and by the small island now called Pelican Island. Boats were sent to sound and buoy out the channel, and this was successfully accomplished on the 16th of February. The Amable was ordered to enter, and on the 20th she weighed anchor. La Salle was on shore watching her. A party of men, at a little distance, were cutting down a tree to make a canoe. Suddenly some of them ran towards him with terrified faces, crying out that they had been set upon by a troop of Indians, who had seized their companions and carried them off. La Salle ordered those about him to take their arms, and at once set out in pursuit. He overtook the Indians, and opened a parley with them, but when he wished to reclaim his men, he discovered that they had been led away during the conference to the Indian camp, a league and a half distant. Among them was one of his lieutenants, the young Marquis de la Sablonnière. He was deeply vexed, 
for the moment was critical, but the men must be recovered, and he led his followers in haste towards the camp. Yet he could not refrain from turning a moment to watch the amiable as she neared the shoals, and he remarked with deep anxiety to Jutel, who was with him, that if she held that course she would soon be aground. They hurried on till they saw the Indian huts, about fifty of them, oven-shaped and covered with mats and hides, were clustered on a rising ground, with their inmates gathered among and around them. As the French entered the camp, there was the report of a cannon from the seaward. The startled savages dropped flat with terror. A different fear seized La Salle, for he knew that the shot was a signal of disaster. Looking back, he saw the amiable furling her sails, and his heart sank with the conviction that she had struck upon the reef. Smothering his distress, she was laden with all the stores of the colony. He pressed forward among the filthy wigwams, whose astonished inmates swarmed about the band of armed strangers, staring between curiosity and fear. La Salle knew those with whom he was dealing, and without ceremony entered the chief's lodge with his followers. The crowd closed around them, naked men and half-naked women, described by Joutel as of singular ugliness. They gave buffalo meat and dried porpoise to the unexpected guests, but La Salle, racked with anxiety, hastened to close the interview and having without difficulty recovered the kidnapped men, he returned to the beach, leaving with the Indians, as usual, an impression of goodwill and respect. When he reached the shore, he saw his worst fears realized. The amiable lay careened over on the reef, hopelessly aground. Little remained but to endure the calamity with firmness, and to save, as far as might be, the vessel's cargo. This was no easy task, the boat which hung at her stern had been stove in, it is said, by design. Beaujou sent a boat from the Jolie, and one or more Indian pirogues were procured. La Salle urged on his men with stern and patient energy, and a quantity of gunpowder and flour was safely landed. But now the wind blew fresh from the sea, the waves began to rise, a storm came on. The vessel, rocking to and fro on the sandbar, opened along her side, and the ravenous waves were strewn with her treasures. When the confusion was at its height, a troop of Indians came down to the shore, greedy for plunder. The drum was beat, the men were called to arms. La Salle set his trustiest followers to guard the gunpowder, in fear, not of the Indians alone, but of his own countrymen. On that lamentable night, the sentinels walked their rounds through the dreary bivouac among the casks, bales, and boxes which the sea had yielded up, and here, too, their fate-hunted chief held his drearier vigil, encompassed with treachery, darkness, and the storm. Not only La Salle, but Joutel and others of his party believed that the wreck of the amiable was intentional. A grand who commanded her had disobeyed orders and disregarded signals. Though he had been directed to tow the vessel through the channel, he went in under sail, and though little else was saved from the wreck, his personal property, including even some preserved fruits, was all landed safely. He had long been on ill terms with La Salle. 
All La Salle's company were now encamped on the sands at the left side of the inlet where the amiable was wrecked. They were all, says the engineer Minet, sick with nausea and dysentery. Five or six died every day in consequence of brackish water and bad food. There was no grass but plenty of rushes and plenty of oysters. There was nothing to make ovens, so that they had to eat flour saved from the wreck, boiled into messes of porridge with this brackish water. Along the shore were quantities of uprooted trees and rotten logs thrown up by the sea and the lagoon. Of these, and fragments of the wreck, they made a sort of rampart to protect their camp, and here, among tents and hovels, bales, boxes, casks, spars, dismounted cannon, and pens for fowls and swine, were gathered the dejected men and homesick women who were to seize New Biscay, and hold for France a region large as half Europe. The Spaniards, whom they were to conquer, were they knew not where." They knew not where they were themselves, and for the fifteen thousand Indian allies who were to have joined them, they found two hundred squalid savages, more like enemies than friends. In fact, it was soon made plain that these, their neighbors, wished them no good. A few days after the wreck, the prairie was seen on fire. As the smoke and flame rolled towards them before the wind, La Salle caused all the grass about the camp to be cut and carried away, and especially around the spot where the powder was placed. The danger was averted, but it soon became known that the Indians had stolen a number of blankets and other articles and carried them to their wigwams. Unwilling to leave his camp, La Salle sent his nephew, Moringay, and several other volunteers with a party of men to reclaim them. They went up the bay in a boat, landed at the Indian camp, and, with more mettle than discretion, marched into it, sword in hand. The Indians ran off, and the rash adventurers seized upon several canoes as an equivalent for the stolen goods. Not knowing how to manage them, they made slow progress on their way back, and were overtaken by night before reaching the French camp. They landed, made a fire, placed a sentinel, and lay down on the dry grass to sleep. The sentinel followed their example, when suddenly they were awakened by the war-whoop and a shower of arrows. Two volunteers, Henri and Deloge, were killed on the spot, a third named Guyenne was severely wounded, and young Moringay received an arrow through the arm. He leaped up and fired his gun at the vociferous but invisible foe. Others of the party did the same, and the Indians fled. It was about this time that Beaujeu prepared to return to France. He had accomplished his mission, and landed his passengers at what La Salle assured him to be one of the mouths of the Mississippi. His ship was in danger on this exposed and perilous coast, and he was anxious to find shelter. For some time past his relations with La Salle had been amicable, and it was agreed between them that Beaujeu should stop at Galveston Bay, the supposed chief mouth of the Mississippi, or failing to find harborage here, that he should proceed to Mobile Bay, and wait there till April to hear from his colleague. Two days before the wreck of the Amable, he wrote to La Salle, I wish with all my heart that you would have more confidence in me, 
for my part i will always make the first advances and i will follow your counsel whenever i can do so without risking my ship i will come back to this place if you want to know the results of the voyage i am going to make if you wish i will go to martinique for provisions and reinforcements in fine there is nothing i am not ready to do you have only to speak la salle had begged him to send ashore a number of cannon and a quantity of iron stowed in the jolie for the use of the colony and beaujou replies i wish very much that i could give you your iron but it is impossible except in a harbour for it is on my ballast and under your cannon my spare anchors and all my stowage it would take three days to get it out which cannot be done in this place where the sea runs like mountains when the slightest wind blows outside i would rather come back to give it to you in case you do not send the belle to bay du saint esprit mobile bay to get it i beg you once more to consider the offer i make you to go to martinique to get provisions for your people i will ask the intendant for them in your name and if they are refused i will take them on my own account to this la salle immediately replied i received with singular pleasure the letter you took the trouble to write me for i found in it extraordinary proofs of kindness in the interest you take in the success of an affair which i have the more at heart as it involves the glory of the king and the honour of monseigneur de seignelay i have done my part towards a perfect understanding between us and have never been wanting in confidence but even if i could be so the offers you make are so obliging that they would inspire complete trust he nevertheless declines them assuring beaujeu at the same time that he has reached the place he sought and is in a fair way of success if he can but have the cannon cannonballs and iron stowed on board the jolie directly after he writes again i cannot help conjuring you once more to try to give us the iron beaujeu replies to show you how ardently i wish to contribute to the success of your undertaking i have ordered your iron to be got out in spite of my officers and sailors who tell me that i endanger my ship by moving everything in the depth of the hold on a coast like this where the seas are like mountains i hesitated to disturb my stowage not so much to save trouble as because no ballast is to be got hereabout and i have therefore had six cannon from my lower deck battery let down into the hold to take the place of the iron and he again urges la salle to accept his offer to bring provisions to the colonists from martinique on the next day the amiable was wrecked beaujeu remained a fortnight longer on the coast and then told la salle that being out of wood water and other necessaries he must go to mobile bay to get them nevertheless he lingered a week more repeated his offer to bring supplies from martinique which la salle again refused and at last set sail on the twelfth of march after a leave-taking which was courteous on both sides la salle and his colonists were left alone several of them had lost heart and embarked for home with beaujeu among these was minet the engineer who had fallen out with la salle and who when he reached france was imprisoned for deserting him 
even his brother the priest jean cavalier had a mind to abandon the enterprise but was persuaded at last to remain along with his nephew the hot-headed moringay and the young cavalier a mere schoolboy the two recollet friars zenobe mambre and anastase douay the trusty joutel a man of sense and observation and the marquis de la sablonniere a debauched noble whose patrimony was his sword were now the chief persons of the forlorn company the rest were soldiers raw and undisciplined and artisans most of whom knew nothing of their vocation add to these the miserable families and the infatuated young women who had come to tempt fortune in the swamps and cane brakes of the mississippi la salle set out to explore the neighborhood joutel remained in command of the so-called fort he was beset with wily enemies and often at night the indians would crawl in the grass around his feeble stockade howling like wolves but a few shots would put them to flight a strict guard was kept and a wooden horse was set in the enclosure to punish the sentinel who should sleep at his post they stood in daily fear of a more formidable foe and once they saw a sail which they doubted not was spanish but she happily passed without discovering them they hunted on the prairies and speared fish in the neighboring pools on easter day the sieur le gros one of the chief men of the company went out after the service to shoot snipes but as he walked barefoot through the marsh a snake bit him and he soon after died two men deserted to starve on the prairie or to become savages among savages others tried to escape but were caught and one of them was hung a knot of desperadoes conspired to kill joutel but one of them betrayed the secret and the plot was crushed la salle returned from his exploration but his return brought no cheer he had been forced to renounce the illusion to which he had clung so long and was convinced at last that he was not at the mouth of the mississippi the wreck of the amiable itself was not pregnant with consequences so disastrous note the conduct of Beaujou, hitherto judged chiefly by the printed narrative of Joutel, is set in a new and more favorable light by his correspondence with La Salle. Whatever may have been their mutual irritation, it is clear that the naval commander was anxious to discharge his duty in a manner to satisfy Sangalay, and that he may be wholly acquitted of any sinister design. When he left La Salle on the 12th of March, he meant to sail in search of the Bay of Mobile, Bay de Saint-Esprit, partly because he hoped to find it a safe harbor, where he could get La Salle's cannon out of the hold and find ballast to take their place, and partly to get a supply of wood and water, of which he was in extreme need. He told La Salle that he would wait there till the middle of April, in order that he, La Salle, might send the bell to receive the cannon. But on this point there was no definite agreement between them. Beaujou was ignorant of the position of the bay, which he thought much nearer than it actually was. After trying two days to reach it, the strong headwinds and the discontent of his crew induced him to bear away for Cuba and after an encounter with pirates and various adventures he reached france about the first of july 
he was coldly received by Saint-Galais, who wrote to the intendant at Rochelle. His Majesty has seen what you wrote about the idea of the Sir de Beaujou, that the Sir de la Salle is not at the mouth of the Mississippi. He seems to found this belief on such weak conjectures that no great attention need be given to his account, especially as this man has been prejudiced from the first against La Salle's enterprise. Lettre de Saint-Galais à Arnoul, 22 juillet 1685 Margri, 2, 604. The minister at the same time warns Beaujou to say nothing in disparagement of the enterprise, under pain of the king's displeasure. The narrative of the engineer Minet sufficiently explains a curious map made by him, as he says, not on the spot, but on the voyage homeward, and still preserved in the Archive Scientifique de la Marine. This map includes two distinct sketches of the mouth of the Mississippi, the first which corresponds to that made by Franquelin in 1684 is entitled Embouchure de la Rivière comme Monsieur de la Salle la marque dans sa carte. The second bears the words Coste lac par la hauteur de sa rivière comme nous les avons trouvés. These Coste lac are a rude representation of the lagoons of Matagorda Bay and its neighborhood into which the Mississippi is made to discharge, in accordance with the belief of La Salle. A portion of the coastline is drawn from actual, though superficial, observation. The rest is merely conjectural. End of chapter 25